You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined this fine morning by Dr. Michael Farmer, who's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Uh, Michael, how are things up in Minnesota? They are pretty good. We have several days off next week for what's called Missions Fest, which is one of the advantages to teaching at a Christian Missionary Alliance school. Very good, very good. Also coming at you through your headphones or your car speakers or, you know, whatever device. We don't discriminate that way. Uh, Is Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are you today? Oh, I'm pretty decent. Um, I mean, my headset broke and now it's wrapped up with electrical tape. Oh, gnarly. Yeah. Coming at you down that dusty road. Good loving, yeah. he's got a truckload. <laughs> David Grubbs, the original soul man. <laughs> yes, indeed. <clears throat> well, guys, uh, what's been happening on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? I, I know that a new City of Man dropped recently. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. Have you guys? I have not. It's in my queue because it's another one of uh, uh, another one of Coyle and Jordan's ancient asides. They're going to talk about the Roman Revolution, and I'm looking forward to watching Rome fall the first time. I guess I'm mm-hmm. not sure you can call an hour and forty five minute interview an aside, though. <laughs> I think at yeah. that point it's a soliloquy. Yeah, but by the by the ancient scale, it is an aside. Um, well, Christian Feminist Podcast put out their episode on uh, Mar- Margaret Cavendish and her Blazing World. Um, mm-hmm. That that I've got that one queued up, and we have Very a profiles good. out on icons and mm-hmm. sundry things. So, so all kinds of you did like a crossover with something about the death of God. I must confess, I didn't listen to it. Uh, I did. It actually has nothing to do with Death of God. Um, and, and actually, I, I started listening to it with that expectation, and then the guys on that show were more evangelical than me by a few leaps. So I I, I was caught off guard, I'll admit. <laughs> but the, their podcast is Let God Die, but the word God is in a box, so it's Let the God in Your Box Die. Uh... Very clever. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes, indeed. Privileging the uh, privileging the written word over the spoken word. Yeah, for an audio medium, no less. It's just like difference. <laughs> That's right, man. Well, something that is nothing like difference is the mark of the beast, and that is our subject matter today. <laughs> I don't know. It and, probably, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody who thinks difference is the mark of the beast. <laughs> well, if you've got that queued up, Michael, it'll come later in the show. But I want to start not with uh, difference, but with uh, the Bible. 
uh, you know, the mark of the beast is, is a phrase that occurs in the middle chapters of the New Testament book of Revelation or the Apocalypse, depending on what translation you're using. Uh, but that imagery doesn't have its roots in the late New Testament, but it has its roots in the late Old Testament. So, Michael, let's turn to the book of Daniel, one of the prophetic books. Tell our listeners about Daniel's visions of marauding beasts in Daniel 7 and 8. Uh, what does Daniel's apocalypse unveil? I probably never would have read this this closely if you hadn't made me. I'm pretty sure the last time I read <laughs> Daniel, I just kind of skated over it. And, and, and you came away knowing to eat your vegetables. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, th- these dreams come right after the famous story of the lion's den and eating your vegetables. And, and that story ends by saying that Daniel, quote, enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. By the way, I use the New American Standard. So when I quote stuff, that's where it's coming from. That The dreams take place during the reign of Belshazzar, who reigns before both of them. And there's some question of whether the Darius that they're talking about really even existed. I'm not an ancient historian, so I don't feel like I have to answer that question. The important mm-hmm. thing here is that there's a there's kind of a backtrack here. We know the end of Daniel's story, and we're backtracking so that he can tell us the end of all stories, at least as he sees it. Mm-hmm. So, so the first dream, th- these dreams, I have to say, operate with fantastic dream logic. Um, the first dream has four winds that stir up four great beasts, and here they are. First, there's a lion with eagle wings. It is plucked, it is made to stand on two legs like a man, and it's given a human mind. Then, there's a bear that has three ribs in its mouth, and somebody tells the bear to eat its fill of meat. Then there's a leopard that has four bird's wings and four heads, and it's given dominion. And then there's a fourth beast that's unlike the first three. It's terrifying. It has iron teeth. It has ten horns. It causes massive destruction. Then another horn floats in and pulls out three of its horns, and it suddenly gets human eyes, and it makes all these boasts about how awesome it is. (laughs) Then Mm -hmm. God, God, who I take to be God, uh, the the text calls him the Ancient of Days, takes takes the throne. He's attended by thousands of servants. Fire flows forth from his throne, and that fourth beast is destroyed and thrown into the fire. The other beasts are allowed to live, but they're no longer allowed to rule, so they're kind of tamed. The -hmm. Son of Man then appears before God, and he's given dominion over everything. Now, both of these dreams are helpfully or unhelpfully interpreted for us. In some ways, the interpretation's raise questions rather than provide answers but (laughs) yes they do (laughs) daniel's interpretation of the first dream is that the beasts represent four kings and presumably their kingdoms and the saints will possess the kingdom forever the fourth beast wages war with the saints until god puts an end to it um he represents a fourth kingdom which is different than the others it's a, a kingdom that is given to global conquest once it's destroyed its dominion also will be given to the saints so that's the first vision. Uh, I would assume that fourth that fourth beast represents the Persian Empire, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, Nathan? Um, I'd be more inclined to call it the Greeks, but I, yeah, I have my own reasons for that. Up, that we the Greeks come up the Greeks come up by name in the second vision, so you're probably right. Okay, but I've got I've got the Persians on my mind because of that great series Dan Carlin did last year about the King of oh, Kings. Oh, King of Kings. Yep, yep. Okay, so the second vision happens two years later in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Um, Daniel dreams of himself this time. He's actually in the dream. He's in the city of Susa. And he sees a ram with two horns, one of which is substantially longer than the other. 
this this ram butts to the west, to the north, and to the south, and it like beats up all the other animals. Then mm-hmm. a goat with a horn between its eyes floats in, and I do mean floats in. His feet don't touch the ground. He just kind of <laughs> hovers into the scene. He rushes. He rushes the ram and shatters the ram's horns, and he kills the ram. And once the goat is victorious, its own horn, which, remember, is right between its eyes, breaks off, and four new horns emerge, which are connected with the four winds in the four cardinal directions. From one of those horns grows a small horn, which grows toward the southeast. And it actually says it, it, it like leans toward the south and toward the east, so I don't know if that means it has two points or whether it's leaning in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says it, it's leaning toward the beautiful land. Uh, this ram, this goat, excuse me, causes part of the host of heaven to fall. The goat is going to reign for twenty three hundred days, and then the holy place will be restored. And now Daniel is just utterly flabbergasted for good reason because this is a <laughs> yeah. very very strange dream. But Gabriel, we're told it's Gabriel. A voice says, "Gabriel, tell him what it means." And uh, Gabriel <laughs> interprets for him. Daniel, the game show. He tells yeah. <laughs> Gabriel tells him what he's won. He says that this this dream is about the end times, and the ram represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The goat mm-hmm. represents Greece. Four kingdoms arise from Greece, and at the end of their rule, another king arises, wicked and powerful, quote, but he will be broken without human agency. I am mm-hmm. slow to to interpret prophecy, but if I had to guess, if you made me, I would say that Daniel's probably talking about the coming of Christ during the Roman Empire, not about eschatology as such. So it's the end of this era of human history rather than the eschaton. He's talking about mm-hmm. the first coming of Christ, if Christ is involved in this prophecy, not about the second coming. Would be my guess. Mm-hmm. But, hey, who knows? <laughs> well, David, what would you add to that? Well, we've we've uh, I've said this before, and and now I get to to demonstrate once again um, that I grew up in an extraordinarily dispensational premillennial uh, context, mm-hmm. and and so we camped out on these chapters lots and lots. Um, <laughs> so the four beasts of Daniel seven, um, I've always heard them read as. Uh, Lion with eagle wings is Babylon, and when it is put on its feet and given a human mind, that's a that's a touchback to the madness of Nebuchadnezzar, um, which is later restored when he repents. So makes sense. It begins bestial and ends human. Um, the bear then is the the empire of Medes and Persians. Um, the the fast leopard with four wings is. Um, Alexander with his amazing speed of conquest, but then is divided into four, um, four, three, mm-hmm. four, anyway, oh. four, whatever. I can't remember. Yeah. I mean, Alexander actually split his kingdom among three. Well, no, yeah. he actually said, let the strongest take it. And then eventually three generals yeah, beat each other up until they, out. yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so so Alexander falls, and then there is the 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 division of his empire, and then the mysterious Iron Tooth Beast um, gets treated as uh, gets treated as Rome, with um, which then makes the the rise of this this little boasting horn, um, who gets crushed at the end of days, 
to have something to do with Rome in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't yet gotten into the 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 the, the dispensational pre mill stuff because you could you could take it that way and still be. Um, a preterist still see Daniel as having to do with not the end of days, but with a, a historical period that is in a right. past for us. The end of the world as we know it. David, do you, yes. do you would you still consider yourself premillennial just out of curiosity? Uh, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Pres- that, Presbyterians uh, tend to be all millennial is why I, yeah, why yeah, I ask. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm... John Calvin never did a, a commentary on the book of Revelation. No, he did not. <laughs> and I'm kind of feeling that. <laughs> um, so, so I, I mean, there, there, there's things that I see in, in, in different readings. Well, mm-hmm. of Daniel, of, of the, of the various, you know, apocalypses in the scripture. Um, that that I see strengths and usefulness and edification in. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to try to have my cakes and eat them too. Um, you know, if 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 you push me on it, my gut will be that there is some great future catastrophe and future deliverance, but that also um, apocalypses have a lot to do with the realities of here and now for God's people in all times, um, which mm-hmm. means that it would also reflect historical realities. So yeah. how's, how, how's, how's that for being, you know, KG and not answering? <laughs> yeah, that's some world-class prevarication there, David. Oh, shoot. Just, just to lay my cards Thanks. on the table, and this will become clear later, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I don't take too hard a stance on it, but if you pushed me, I would say I'm... All millennial, and that these texts were written not for us, but for the for the for their immediate audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nathan? Do you mind? Do you mind? Uh, I, I know you're not very good at like confessing your theological positions. <laughs> well, honestly, part of that is because I teach theology, so I mean, just professionally, I'm always taking a position that I might not hold myself for mm-hmm. the sake of getting other people to push on their own. Uh, so I mean, but that that's turned me into a chameleon. If 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 David is ambivalent, I'm positively amorphous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, I mean, as far as that goes, I mean, you know, I read the millennium passage in Revelation, which isn't really part of our subject matter today. But since you asked, uh, as a a word of encouragement to the people who are facing martyrdom in the first century. Mm-hmm. That, you know, though your life might be cut short by the sword of Rome, God will give you a, not only a life, but a reign that is a thousand years. So I take it as a, an image that has possibilities for chronological historical interpretation and potentials for more allegorical interpretation. Gotcha. I mean, again, gun to my head, I'd probably go the allegorical di- direction for the millennium in particular. Now with David... Uh, I do expect that, you know, the world as we know it is going to end, um, how to put this? Unpleasantly? Catac- cataclysmically. Ra- well, no, 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 not necessarily unpleasantly, but... Um, With a bang, not a whimper? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, because a month ago I spent a lot of time around process people, I became very aware that I don't share their 
sense of continuity of the future with the present. I think that there mm. will be some kind of discontinuity, whereas, you know, for, for a lot of process folks, uh, any kind of discontinuity is to make an error in the nature of God. But that's also not what we're talking about today, so... Um, I, was just, I was just curious. I just, I just oh, that's felt fine. like we that's should fine. lay our cards on the table here. This, mm-hmm. this sure, is a hot-button issue in some circles. Yeah, that's we, not a problem. We can all agree that one's stance on the millennium is is not uh, of the utmost importance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you keep doing a podcast together even if you disagree. Right. <laughs> Pan well, millennialism. Uh, yeah. Well, one, oh, gosh. Uh <laughs> One thing I do want to point out, just on a literary level, is the optics of this vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that makes it terrifying, in addition to the dream character that Michael so rightly pointed out, is the fact that this is a reversal of what you get in the early chapters of Genesis. There you get the beasts of the world being ruled over by man, uh, by humanity. And here, right at the outset, you have not only beasts that are exerting violence and force against humanity but also at times that stand up on their hind legs and think like a man so i mean mm. uh, on, a, on a very basic uh image level right no matter whether you read it historically allegorically or otherwise there is a reversal of genesis going on in this vision that gives it its horrifying character mm-hmm. uh and I, and I think that's important because in daniel 7 as michael so nicely put it uh, the one that the Ancient of Days sends to regain rule and order is the Son of Man. Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels especially picks up that phrase, Son of Man, to talk about whatever it is that he's doing in creation. Uh, but I mean, again, on a very basic literary level, this is a word of comfort that the order that is established in Genesis is fragile and is precarious, but ultimately it will be restored because of the faithfulness of God. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that all of the discussions we've had are very important ones. I also mm-hmm. want to go back to the very straightforward image of the beast that rules over humanity, the human being who restores the rule of God over the beasts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that whole canon view is is good. Oh, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Well, well, David, now that I've said something good, I want you to say something good. Uh, <laughs> picking up where we left off here with the Old Testament, how does the book of Revelation, especially the 12th and 13th chapters, pick up on those images from Daniel and what changes happen to those images? And for that matter, what's the apocalyptic deal when this vision comes to the church in the years of Domitian? Mm. Well, Revelation, John's Apocalypse, uh, is another series of of uh, of visions with that that dream logic that Michael appeals to, mm-hmm. and you you just kind of have to roll with it as images um, morph as you know as as narrators tell you that you're looking at one thing while another thing is described and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it begins with uh, a, a woman. Uh, who is a great sign appearing in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She gives birth, um, but the um, this, this giving birth is threatened by a dragon, a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and, and you know, you, 
there I think the the Daniel echoes start with these you know the mul- the multiple heads the multiple horns oh best believe um, it yeah yeah so um this dragon wants to eat the baby who is born a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron um at that point you need to be picking up on uh the messianic davidic king um son of god uh imagery especially from the from the psalms of kingship right um you know, today you're, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Sit on your throne until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of imagery. So um, for for John, uh, uh, a a revelator uh, of of the church of Christianity, um, uh, he can say, and I would say with him that this male child with the rod of iron is Jesus Christ. And so mm-hmm. the woman he's being born to. Um, has read been read different ways. Um, often it's taken as a reference to the Virgin Mary personally. Um, sometimes it's taken as a reference to um, Israel or the people of God more generally figured as a woman, which is often the case mm-hmm. um, in prophecy. In either case, um, the woman is delivered of the baby and both are protected from, uh, from the dragon. Uh, there's this interlude in which um, Michael and the the other angels, the the angelic army of God, battle with the dragon and his angels and cast the dragon down. Cast the dragon down, and the dragon continues to pursue uh, the woman and continues to oppose um, her and uh, the rest of her offspring, who are identified as those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So here we have, um, another echo of, of Daniel, um, especially the, uh, the notion of, of, of the saints that are, uh, this this little horn that makes war on the saints and the idea that that God's uh, that God's people are being threatened by um, whomever this uh, this this threat in the vision is um, revelation also has uh, a, th- a threat to the people of God in it so then we get to uh, revelation 13 uh, where you definitely see start to see the the Daniel imagery come in. A beast mm-hmm. rises from the sea. Okay. All right. Beast from the sea. With ten horns. Okay. We've got we've got the horns. Uh, seven heads. Wait. We already saw something with 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 heads and horns. Um, ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Um, so, the echo of Daniel, but also the echo of the previous chapter with the description of the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, the beast I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth so those four beasts that are in Daniel are now combined into an aggregate beast super which, monster yeah a super monster which yeah. has also some of the attributes of the fourth monster mm-hmm. the dragon gives it power and authority um, one of the head is given a wound the wound is healed um, people worship the beast, and the beast utters uh, is given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. All right, and so there it's like the um, like the little horn in Daniel eight 
that uh, that's that that speaks um, that talks big, <laughs> the big talking little horn. Um, <laughs> so uh, a second beast rises from the earth towards the end of the chapter with two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. Again, this other beast has this connection to a dragon. And it, re- and it uh, I think, reminds us of, of Daniel 8 with the ram. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got the, the, the two-horned lamb. It speaks like a dragon, but it's not the only lamb in Revelation. It also um, is, is picking up in a kind of uh, parody way uh, the lamb that sits on the throne who speaks with the the voice of god um and this second beast um operates seemingly as kind of a sidekick viceroy to the first beast and then we get to the number um without the mark of the beast you cannot uh, buy and sell everyone must receive that mark and no one can buy or sell with a mark without the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom, says verse 18. Let the <laughs> one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Dum-dum-dum. And what that means, well, there is no voice from heaven that says, Gabriel, explain it. So, <laughs> so we're just kind of just yeah. kind of left at that point. Um, what what do the Christians under Domitian see? Um, well, within that immediate t- context, they they see a vision in which the saints of God are pursued by the forces of the dragon, the forces of the serpent, mm-hmm. which um, I think they would have uh, good canonical reason to associate with that old serpent, the devil who was a deceiver right. from the beginning. And actually this is the one symbol in revelation at the beginning of chapter nine. It flat out says the serpent is the devil. Yes. Right. <laughs> so that's yes. the one actual clue you get in revelation that right. don't expect anymore. <laughs> so the devil and the devil surrogates who are themselves devilish in their appearance and in their, and in mm. the way that they behave. Um, they pursue the people of God. They slay the 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 the, the saints of God with a sword. Um, but as the the story arc of of uh, of Revelation says, um, these beasts rule but for a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if if you are a Christian in the days of Domitian or the days of Nero. Um, you you live in a world in which uh, the the beasts of empire devour much flesh, mm. and uh, the the comfort that um, that the son of man, the one with the rod of iron that will tread down the serpent, um, that that one will rise and and will eventually restore order. Right, that you're in um, you're at a particular point in a plot line. Um, that is that is set by God Himself. Um, that that is a comfort. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What what else might we pick up on? Well, first of all, listeners, I misspoke. Uh, it's chapter twenty that says that the dragon is the ancient serpent who mm-hmm. is the devil and Satan. So mm-hmm. I apologize for that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're laying down. I mean, exactly what the vision is 
communicating to that first century audience. And I mean, honestly, Michael, I mean, now that I've had a moment to think about your earlier question, I, I don't think about Revelation as having a single meaning, but having a meaning for the first century audience and then one that, you know, later audiences pick up and then whatever it is that we do with it is a related but distinctive third thing. Well, that, uh, that's true of most scripture, don't you think? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I, I think the tendency sometimes is to say, you know, what is the single referent for this symbol in Revelation? And I'm, I'm reticent to do that. Fair enough. But, I mean, you know, I, I think, David, that, you know, in that first century context, you're right that uh, this is an unveiling, you know, that's what the, what the word apocalypse means, you know, I mean, you think of the symbols that the Roman Empire used for itself, I mean, it's the grand eagle of justice, uh, mm-hmm. but instead of that, you get this devouring dragon and this horrific beast and, you know, this prophet that's, that looks like a lamb but sounds like a dragon, so... Uh, looks mm-hmm. Jesus-y, but, you know, talks like the devil. Um, and, you know, I mean, in in all of this, I mean, uh, it's certainly a word of comfort, as you said, that, you know, deliverance is coming. It's also uh, a moment of truth-telling, you know. I mean, all of the grandeur that Rome promises and all of the things it's promising, if we can just get rid of this sectarian, cannibalistic, incestuous cult, uh, <laughs> yeah. is not is not a true promise. It, it is, you know, a, an act of war against the God who yields all authority to the lamb who was slain. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I realize I'm talking in, you know, dream talk. I like that. I, I, Michael, I think the last two episodes you've laid down a phrase in the first five minutes that govern the episode. You're doing, you're, you're good at that. I'm a poet. <laughs> 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 but I want to talk about the number itself. So Michael, for the sake of comparison to later interpretations that we're going to talk talk about, what is gematria, and what does six hundred and sixty and six, which is what the most manuscripts in the Greek say, uh, what does that number have to do with the tradition of numerical codes for people's names? Well, I had never heard of gematria. Gematria. Uh, I had heard it said gematria, but I might be saying it wrong. Gematria. You know, I speak French, so the G, the, I want to make the G. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. It's an ancient Near East alphanumeric cipher. I believe it's developed by the Babylonians and then kind of adopted mm-hmm. by the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. It involves assigning numbers to particular letters in whatever alphabet you're dealing with. So some scholars say that 666 is gematria for Nero Caesar when his name is written in Aramaic. And that would make sense, especially if you believe, like me, that primarily John the Revelator is writing to the early church about things that are happening in the early church. John's Mm -hmm. writing in exile. His letters are probably being read. They're probably being censored. And so he's got to be covert in his criticism of Rome. But the problem with that is many scholars, including conservative scholars, it's the official position of the Catholic Church, I believe, that Revelation was written in 95 AD or so, after Nero's mm-hmm. death, in which case there would be no reason to present him as the Antichrist. So perhaps Nero is a code within a code that refers to the emperor Domitian, who is mm-hmm. alive and who is conducting a, uh, a really brutal purge of Christians at the time. So from what I can tell, that is what Gematria would, would say to 
666, but I'm sure I'm leaving something out since I had never heard of Gomatria before I read your <laughs> show notes. No, that's all right. And I mean, that you know, the, the case for Nero here being a sort of code for Domitian has its parallel in the fact that, you know, Revelation never talks about the fall of Rome. It's always the fall of Babylon, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, we know historically had not existed as a city for a good 150, 200 years by the time the apocalypse is being written. So uh, there's definitely other places here where there are, you know, pretty blatant, let's be honest, but uh, nonetheless symbolic representations of current reality seem to be at play. Uh, what else is going on here, David? I don't know a heck of a lot of, of about Gematria. Um, okay. <laughs> except... Um, it's uh it's it's tied to uh later uh kabbalism uh, mm-hmm. jewish uh a jewish kind of mystical deeply mystical approach to interpreting uh the torah um in which um all words most words uh can be evaluated in terms of their numeric significance that you mm-hmm. can break everything down to its constituent letters and find some kind of secret meaning in it um which which david have you ever seen the movie pie i've not okay because as you say this the dialogue from that movie is rattling through my head i won't i won't torment our listeners with it but it, it's a fun little movie that uh has to do with gematria go ahead though sorry well so uh, i mean there there's the there there's that so it's it's uh it's it's something that has a has a long tradition that even that continues even on into the middle ages um and and beyond um one of the one of the things in just kind of reading around um the thing with nero caesar um uh i have read but i have not seen the the evidence for uh, but I've I've seen multiple sources just kind of toss out that oh yeah there were you know Christians thought that Nero was going to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which, the cult of Nero Redivivus. Yeah. Okay. So so that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's a thing in the scholarship, like you, David. I've never seen the primary documents. I really uh, but, like to see that because yeah. So listeners, if you can point us to the primary documents on that, that would be fascinating to look at. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, especially in older biblical studies, that was an idea that kind of grew vastly in proportion to what was actually there in the primary sources. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, later generations of scholar have to kind of rein that thing in and say, yeah, maybe yeah. we kind of made that up mostly. Yeah. Um, now, I don't think you have to go there to, to the cult of the, you mm-hmm. know, Nero born again. I think you can just say it's using Nero as a symbol for everything that's bad about Roman emperors. Right. Well, and and they've got a what I would say is that they've already got a precedent for that right there in the Roman Empire because what do Roman emperors call themselves? Caesar. Caesar, right. They already <laughs> see themselves as the embodiment of uh the an instantiation of a particular personality that is meant to kind of fill out and enflesh um, the ideal of their of their stature of their role you know mm-hmm. you know calling themselves Caesar is to say I stand in the place of Caesar Caesar is um, Caesar is what I am mm-hmm. um, and, and importantly the man uh, you know Gaius Julius Caesar 
uh, Caesar was not the family name. That was his given individual name. Yes. So it, it immediately transforms into a name for a position, even though his family name was not the Caesar part, but the Julius part. Right. Interesting. Um, well, and it's, it's, it's Augustus that does it, right? It's, it's, oh, it's, yeah, o- yeah. it's, it's uh-huh. Octavian who, who steps in and makes, um, the individual personality of, of Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, it's, it's, uh, Octavian who steps in and takes that larger than life, um, person and evacuates it of biography and makes it a space that others can occupy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so maybe, maybe if we're, you know, maybe, maybe the, the revelator is, is, is doing the same thing and saying, you know, when you stand in the shoes of the Roman emperor, you don't stand in the shoes of Gaius Julius Caesar. You stand in the, in the shoes of, of Nero. Exactly. Um, that stinker that even you guys hate. <laughs> and if you are a royal imperial city, you're not actually Rome. You're actually Babylon. Right. Right. Um, which would have been offensive to Romans too, because they mm-hmm. had because of the the kind of um, fascination slash suspicion that they have with um, the East. Yeah, you know, or, so. or, Orientalism has very deep roots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> e- e- even if Carthage is actually slightly to the west of Rome, uh huh. Um, yeah, they they still they 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 still see this kind of oppositional. Um, relationship with with the representatives of the East mm-hmm. in their history. Well, in fact, I mean, you don't call that the Carthaginian Wars. You call it the Punic Wars. They are uh-huh. Phoenicians. They are Easterners. Exactly. Nasty, nasty Easternesses. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that that that's that's what I point out. I mean, and 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 again, if they're using Nero as code, though. Hmm. Not to refer to Nero literally, Nero historically, that would make even a reference to Nero not necessarily one that would say, this must take a preterist, um, a, a this is talking about events that already happened in history. Oh, absolutely, past. yeah, yeah, it could be a, you know, something like Nero is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ne- absolutely, absolutely, I'll grant a, a, that. A Neronian one. You know, mm-hmm. in the same yeah. way, referring to Caesar means uh, means a Caesarian one, right? Or to Babylon, like any idolatrous empire. Absolutely, yeah, I'm with you. I I, I never yeah. thought I'd be the Amen corner for a, you know, pre <laughs> pre millenarian, but hey, Amen, Amen. Yeah. Um, well, David, we could talk about just the biblical source here for our entire episode, and maybe we should have now that we're this deep. Uh, but I do want to move into the Christian era and accelerate to attack speed. Um, what are some of the major ways that Christians receive this strange vision, this mark of the beast in the first millennium? I'll go ahead and make the caveat for you. We can't possibly get to all of the good bits, but what are some of the good bits? Well, I'm going to get to some of the good bits. Now, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's interesting and, and I did, I did a lot of digging. There's not, I wasn't able to find an awful lot. Now, grant, granted, I didn't dig through, you know, the opera omnia of all the fathers. Right, right, right. And I don't have in translation everything that, you know, 
Thomas and Jerome and everyone else, you know, wrote about all the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But but by golly, I searched a lot of stuff and I couldn't find very much that was precisely on the 666 mm-hmm. number of the beast. Lots of Antichrist stuff. So okay. much Antichrist stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and listeners, I mean, just in case you mm. think that Antichrist and the beast are identical, Antichrist is really a word that mainly occurs in the epistle of 1 John, mm-hmm. and yep. it's usually in the plural. Yep. Uh, and the beast is a symbol specifically from Revelation. So uh, yeah. since, since my inclination is to take each book as a literary unit, I want to point that up. Sorry, David, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That that's that is a uh, that 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 is a point um, that is absolutely well taken, but it is also one that is almost immediately subverted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and my uh, my go to is Irenaeus, the mm-hmm. um, uh, father in the kind of the later second century, anti Nicene. So this is before Nicaea. Um, in the generation just after, you know, the fathers that we would call the 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 uh, the, apost- uh, the apostolic fathers, mm-hmm. um, Irenaeus of Lyon in his Against Heresies is the most extensive treatment that I can find in those in early generations of the church dealing precisely with the number. Yep. And he he connects it with the Antichrist because his his desire is to put together as many of as many uh, uh, as much of the data that he's been given um, by the scriptures into into a a kind of coherent form. Um, and so for him, identifying the beast and the Antichrist is not problematic. And he does recognize that there is such a thing as spirit of Antichrist. He hammers mm-hmm. that really home in against heresies. Um, because he wants to say that um, these Gnostics of various stripes um, are absolutely per, um, inst- instances of and participating in the spirit of Antichrist that John in his uh, in his epistles warns against. Um, but he also connects them with the Beast of Revelation, and so uh, he has he shows no knowledge whatsoever of being able to render 666 into Nero, uh, Nero Caesar. Um, but that is because he assumes that we have to work with these with 666 in terms of the numeric values of Greek or, Greek letters, not Hebrew or Aramaic. He just assumes it. So this is, um, this is late second century. Um, John's Apocalypse is typically dated late first century, right? Mm-hmm. So we're only about a hundred years out from John's from John's Apocalypse, and right. already Christians don't know how to read it. <laughs> um, so among the things that he says, he says it is more certain and less hazardous to await the fulfillment of the process of the prophecy. Irenaeus assumes that John's apocalypse is about something that's going to happen in the future, that a, that a historical person and antichrist will arise and do various nasty things. And that that's what, uh, that's what revelation 12 and 13 or particular 13 is about. Um, but he says it is le- more certain and less hazardous to await the fulfillment of the prophecy than to make surmises and cast about for any names that may present themselves, and as much as many names can be found to possess the number mentioned. 
And the same question will, after all, remain unsolved. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he then goes on to suggest several names. Not that he's claiming that, you know, oh, yeah, he, he, he Latinus or the word Titan, both of which he can render into 666. Um, but he's saying, I'm not claiming that these names fit. I'm just showing you that this is easy. Mm-hmm. And then there's another part where he doesn't explain what name it means but the number itself, which he, mm-hmm. um, he says that this beast is a recapitulation made of all sorts of iniquity and every deceit in order that all apostate power flowing into and being shut up in him may be sent into the furnace of fire. I actually really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of the, the, the amazing mashup beast in mm-hmm. Revelation 13 as being an intentional mashup of what are separate beasts in Daniel in order to say that this this beast is the embodiment of all that is wrong in this order. Mm-hmm. It is intentionally composite so that all so that all of this this apostate power says Irenaeus um, can be can be isolated and destroyed. Um, I think that's that's a really interesting way to put it. But the 666 he says is no, <laughs> he shall possess the 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 name that of the for the, with the number six 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 because he sums up in his person all the commixture of wickedness that took place previous to the deluge, due to the apostasy of the angels. For Noah mm-hmm. was six hundred years old when the deluge came, and he sums up every error of devised idols since the flood together with the slaying of the prophets and the cutting off of the just, because the image set up by Nebuchadnezzar has the height of 60 cubits with the breadth of six cubits. And then he recaps the story of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. And so the 600 refers to the apostasy before the flood, while the 60 and the six refer to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Mm -hmm. the number itself represents all apostasy of all history. I do love there. Irenaeus. There you go. Prob- <laughs> problem solved. And just a quick note, David. I mean, <laughs> as you just as as you just laid out so nicely, as early as a hundred years after the composition of, Re- of Revelation, there are Christian writers saying that this is not a reference to one event that has yet to happen, but mm. it's events that have yet to happen, and events that have already happened, and events that are happening right now. So that it, it is a yes. much more encompassing symbolic system yes um you know all the stuff and and i i read a lot of stuff that was talking about the beast and the antichrist more generally even without the number Mm -hmm. and almost always they're wanting to have both of those things to be able to say that this represents historical persecution of the church uh but also the present day adversaries of the church who are troubling its peace but also it points to um, some future. And I thought I'd close out the first millennium with um, Alfred of Insham, an Anglo-Saxon, uh, one of my favorite Anglo-Saxon uh, clergymen who, uh, who, who talks about uh, this time, his own day, uh, he lived in the 10th century. Um, he says it, it, it's important, men need good instruction, especially at this time, which is the ending of the world. And there will be many calamities among mankind before the end comes. And many false Christs will come in my name, 
he quotes he, he he quotes Jesus saying, "I am the Christ, working signs and wonders." And then he talks about the Antichrist who shall come, who is human man and true devil, as our Savior is truly man and God in one person. And then he talks about the Antichrist for a while. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, Alfrich at the end of the first millennium, thinking that he was, um, you know, mere decades away from the coming of, of an Antichrist that he imagines as a kind of hypostatic union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which right, is, devil, devil incarnate in a very straightforward sense. Yeah, Anyway, fun stuff. Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, we're going to skip several hundred years uh, because this is but one episode. Uh, Michael, I know that the 19th and 20th centuries in America were fertile ground for apocalyptic expectations of all sorts. What are some of the, some of the more important or at the least the weirder moments of, Amer- of, of American Mark of the Beast watching? Well, a popular fundamentalist interpretation, which is also shared by some Seventh-day Adventists, is that the beast is the Roman Catholic Church, and thus the Pope would be the Antichrist, because the Catholic Church, they say, has worldly power beyond any normal kingdom. Mm -hmm. I don't happen to believe that. The uh, Schofield Reference Bible identifies the mark of the beast with the forces of this world as controlled by Satan. So I'll, I'll quote Schofield. This is, this is in the, the commentary on Revelation. This world system is imposing and powerful with armies and fleets, is often outwardly religious, scientific, cultured, and elegant, but seething with national and commercial rivalries and ambitions is upheld in any real crisis only by armed force and is dominated by satanic principles. Somebody needs to do a rhetorical study of the Schofield Reference Bible. For whatever you think of the theology of the writing, it's kind of wonderful. <laughs> Hal Lindsey, who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, which kind of kicked off the end times fascination of the late 70s, he connects the mark mm-hmm. of the beast with global currency. Uh, mm-hmm. He also talks about biometrics. That would be like your fingerprint, the way you start your iPhone with your fingerprint. Yeah, that's, that's the mark of the beast. Once we're identified by these things, we have succumbed to the beast. Before right, that, by the way... You can't buy or sell without it. Right, and before that it was credit cards for the same reason. I remember hearing people mm-hmm. say that when I was a kid, that credit cards were the mark of the beast. I, I should say I didn't go to a fundamentalist church, so I didn't hear anybody I respected say that, but I definitely i have heard people say that. Um, historically, Jehovah's Witnesses have believed that the mark of the beast was a unified world government, which is another popular fundamentalist interpretation, in, including... Mm-hmm. Um, Shared by the Left Behind books, which in which the mark is undertaken voluntarily as an oath of loyalty to the Antichrist, who is the head of the successor to the United Nations. So there's that. Mm-hmm. There's that um, unified world government. I went to JW.org, which is the Jehovah's Witness website, and it, they interpret it allegorically. It's not a literal mark, but it's a sign of imperfection and rebellion against God. Oh, interesting. Okay. A couple of wackadoodle ones that I don't think of. Well, I know they're not meant to be taken seriously. Uh, Robert Heinlein, the American science fiction author, has a book called The Number of the Beast, in which the number of the beast is not 666, but 6 to the 6th to the 6th power, which uh, (laughs) represents the number of of universes in the multiverse. I'm not not sure. It's a a theological statement as such. And the other one, I'll never forget this. I remember reading it in the early days of the internet in the 90s. Um, I I know that's not the early days of the internet as such, but... um, Early days of the web. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
the, this the, there was this website that suggested that David Hasselhoff was the Antichrist. No, because uh, <laughs> you, you, like they go through, but the only thing I remember is there's that there's that spot in in Revelation where the uh, the Antichrist has one foot in the ocean and one foot on the land, and he's reading a little book. And it said, uh-huh. what, what could sound more like a lifeguard than reading a paperback on the beach? <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure that how seriously wonderful. to take that. <laughs> That's phenomenal. But the, I, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of very strange interpretations, many of them meant to justify political policy, uh, which, which is a, a little frightening to me. Have I left out anything uh, interesting or wackadoodle? Well... Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the examples you just went through, Michael, I mean, you're right. I mean, they're connected with suspicions of new political developments, right? So, I mean, it's not a a linkage of Daniel's symbols to current political realities so much as it is a link to realities that haven't completely taken form yet, but whose potential is promised. Does that Does that distinction make any sense? Yes, I think so. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I, and, you know, I mean, some of them, you know, the David Hasselhoff thing or the Ronald Wilson Reagan, you know, <laughs> six letters, six letters, six letters, uh, you know, those have their own character. But, I mean, what you're describing, I mean, with the Schofield Reference Bible, with the Hal Lindsey, I mean, these are things that you can't actually see currently in the world, but, you know, it's the kind of prediction that begins with, a structure already in place and extrapolates from there. Hmm. I mean, David, am I making sense here? I, I feel like I might be talking gibberish. Well, in, in, in that these approaches all assume a futurist reading. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And so, and so what they're looking to is, um, what things seem to be on the horizon that would shape up to be like what I imagine the revelation, uh, the reality of revelation 13 to be mm-hmm. um so yeah so it's 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 always um what do i see coming around that corner um interesting um john wesley's notes on the bible um uh, which is uh, as close as he has to a to a commentary on the whole bible uh he has an incredibly long piece on the number of the beast um mm. which uh, which he says uh, is a reference to papacy. Um, uh, he he says the you know the beast the beast is the papacy and the number of his name is the whole time during which he bears this name. And so uh, for him, it's uh, the six hundred sixty six is the number. Uh, it, it's 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 difficult. I, I don't fully understand his argument. He gets into particular popes and what they claimed about the papacy, but he's he he seems to be wanting to say this is the this is the amount of time that dates you know the point at which papacy went wrong to the Reformation, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew Henry does uh, has has a similar uh, has a similar approach. Um, in which the 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 number um, uh, the number has to do with the limit that God puts on His power, not on what His name means. Um, hmm. Yeah. So uh, that there there's that. Um, 
that other tradition of, of, of interpreting it not as code for a name, but as a reference to time, a time period. Um, the only other thing that, I, that I'd like to tip a hat to is barcodes. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, barcodes. Yeah. yeah, the barcodes, yeah. So look at a barcode, and you'll notice that um, uh, it, it, it begins with two thin lines, and then there's two thin lines in the middle of it, and then two thin lines at the end of it. And uh, we were told, you know, in barcode language, those two thin lines mean six. So all the barcodes, <laughs> six, 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 man. I took French in college instead of barcode, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. That's nice. So, yeah, we're all going to get barcodes in our hands and, you know, just, you know, scan them. So, yeah, the scanners at the grocery store take on um, an astonishing and, 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 uh, a deeply suspicious um, meaning if you if you if you start thinking of barcodes in that way. Hmm. Do we well, want to say anything about six sixteen? Well, I mean that that is a variant reading that Irenaeus points to. So, David, if you want to backtrack a bit, you can. Yeah, I, 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 apparently in some of the in some of the variant manuscripts of John's Apocalypse, it says six 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 sixteen and not six 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 or six hundred and ten and six. Yeah. Yeah, and so Irenaeus, yeah, yeah, Irenaeus does reference it, and and actually takes takes some time to um, uh, to blast it as a as a corrupted uh, a corrupted reading, and so all of those who were doing their antichrist <laughs> speculations on the basis of six one six, you know, they're all going to miss him. Uh-huh, uh huh. <laughs> So well, I think we can all yeah. agree that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Okay. Well, I mean this this phenomenon, though. I mean, Michael, you're joking, but I mean this is a reality in I mean American politics, right? I mean that there are certain elements, and I mean I, I think they're especially pronounced since Hal Lindsey, and they're certainly more pronounced since the internet. Um, will assign you know that that rank that. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, the name of the singular Antichrist to particular political figures, right? Whether they be mm-hmm. American politicians, whether they be, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev, Vladimir Putin, wh- whoever you want to put on there, mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know... Uh, or a hundred years ago, the Kaiser. Well, you know, yeah, the, you know the Dodge, right? I heard this growing up. Satan huh. doesn't know when Christ is coming back. So he's always got an antichrist in the chamber. Did people really say that? Oh yeah. I think that there's an uncrazy way to say that, though. <laughs> right? I mean, because if you, if you take, well, ladies and gentlemen, the David Grubbs backhand. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, but because if um if if, if you if you take. Um, the 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 language of the apocalypse as as speaking to kind of perennial realities. Um, there's always going to be a beast who's going to gnawing on the flesh of the saints. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of them's got to be the last one. <laughs> I just I just assume people say things like that so that they can claim Obama is the antichrist and when he dies they don't have to say they were wrong about it. Yeah. Well, Fair I enough. don't 
you know, I don't have a problem saying that, you know, Nero, sure, Nero is the Antichrist. Sure, Hitler was the Antichrist. Sure. You know, all these guys are instantiations of, 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 the, of the spirit of the bestial in use of power, which, you know, attempts to use that power to raise up itself against God. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, I would recommend everybody go back, I think it was last summer, and listen to my interview with Richard Beck, who wrote Reviving Old Scratch. Because yeah. his, mm-hmm. his point is, whether you, whether you want to talk about personal entities or whether you want to talk about superstructures, you've got to admit that there are demonic forces at work in world government. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a cartoon picture of Satan having his hands on somebody's shoulders to to recognize mm-hmm. that. And I think that's a I think that's a very um a very good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well guys, as we often do at the end of a two millennium swing, uh <laughs> I'd like to end with some counsel for future reading. So Let's go around the horn. We'll start with David. When we Christians come face-to-face with Revelation 12 and 13, how can we receive these writings well? Well, first I'd say no one can go wrong by receiving it as comfort to a church that is that lies uncomfortably athwart the ambitions of earthly kings and their pretensions. All right, you know, we'll we'll never go wrong if we take these chapters as pointing us towards that kind of that kind of consolation and that kind of understanding of our situation. Right? Mm-hmm. That's never going to be a misreading of the text. Do, might it refer to things more specific than that? Maybe, arguably, we can have that argument, but nobody's going to get it wrong if they start with the comfort. Um, and. I'm going to throw some Spurgeon in the mix, too. Um, Spurgeon uh, often refers to the number of the beast, but it's always in order to say something like this. I would prefer rather to comprehend the heights and depths of my great master's love than to count the number of the beast or calculate the duration of the little horn. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. (laughs) Michael? Uh, I... I think I, I'm kind of going along with you here, but I would I would say be careful in interpreting. Mm-hmm. That that see any kind of interpretation of these very complex and strange images as heuristic at best, and uh, I would especially be careful attaching them to um, living people, <laughs> mm-hmm. lest we all look foolish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, if you make a prediction publicly and it doesn't come to pass, that does look bad at the very least. Well, I think and it means we can stone you to death. Yeah, if you're reading Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. Yeah, we we got <laughs> verses for that, yeah. <laughs> we, we got verses, we got verses. And they're uh, they're way more clear than the ones the, uh, the, prophets, <laughs> the prophets are using. I'm just saying. Yeah, the Bible is much clearer on what you do with a rock and a false prophet than it is on you know, the beast. <laughs> That's what I always said about Pat Robertson. He was always making all these predictions. Okay, oh, man. Well, let's hold him to it. Yeah. Well, I, I would run with what uh, David and Michael said and just add to it that when we read this, uh, try at a very minimum to hold alongside what the verse is saying to you, what the verse was saying to that first century audience. I think that that rhetorical awareness 
probably does some good work inspiring the kind of caution that Michael's talking about. And it also situates it as a word of comfort, like David was talking about. Uh, you know, one of the thing, one of the readings that bothers me the most, whether we're talking about Revelation or whether we're talking about Isaiah, is the reading that says this couldn't have meant anything to the people to whom it was first read, mm-hmm. uh, because it only refers to things that are happening in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold both of them in tension. And once you, once you do that, we can have the conversation, but let that first audience have priority just out of courtesy. That's what I request. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be my last request today. Um, what are we doing next week, Michael? We're going to be talking about several stories from Ray Bradbury's collection, The Martian Chronicles. Excellent, excellent. I love the sci-fi uh, Well, listeners, until then, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on Facebook. Of course, we always love when you give us uh, iTunes reviews because that is the biggest distributor of podcast content, and that's how new listeners are most likely to find us. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our inter- intern, should I say intern, uh, is Amberly Copeland. I had a brain fart there for a moment. Uh, and <laughs> in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>